Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Numbers. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephenu, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregations said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Thanks, Mel. There's a couple interesting things happening this morning. The first is that our passage is from the book of Numbers. When was the last time you cracked that one open? The second is that uh, I'm speaking. So for those that I don't know, my name is Graham Watson. Um, I work with the youth here, and it's been a while since I've been up here preaching. Uh, I've done a lot of things in my life. Uh, since I preached with you last, I got married, which was great. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I also finished school for hopefully forever, which has also been great. Um, and it's, a, it's great to be up here and have the chance to speak to you again this morning. And thank you for all being a test audience as I continue to learn how to do preaching. So, thanks. Uh, and then the third is that we're starting as a church, we're starting a new series. So, this morning we wrapped up our relationship series last week, and this morning we start a new series on place. So, uh, the importance of place in the Bible is what we're going to be kind of looking at over the next month or so. We're going to be looking at some key themes that have to do with place as, and how they relate to kind of where we are now in our walk today. Uh, and I think that this is important, right? We all have special places that we can go to or remember or recall that have meaning for us. And in our modern landscape of transience and moving and commuting, I think there's something within us that really longs to be somewhere with roots put down. And so that's what we're going to be exploring today. I think it's also important to recognize place because of its um, 
earthiness, for lack of a better word. I think that I've often quickly been tempted to turn my faith into a list of doctrines or maybe checkpoint beliefs in my head of things that I subscribe to without remembering that a lot of our faith is based around this idea called the incarnation, this radical idea that God became a man, that dust was, um, had life breathed into it in the form of Jesus, and Jesus walked around and got dust on his sandals, and he cooked fish for his friends, and he ate the food of the region he was living in, and he bled, and he wept. Like, this is, this is not some existential thing up here. This is a very real and personal thing that we're kind of wrapped up in and striving to live after. And so place and a rootedness is something that I think we would do uh, poorly to forget if we forget it. And the Old Testament is no exception to this as well. And so this morning we're going to be looking at our first topic, uh, a small one called the promised land. We're going to try to cover uh, the promised land, which is this kind of very big overarching idea in the Old Testament, in about 20 minutes or so. So, yeah, hold on. Um, <laughs> we are, uh, we're going to start with just some, uh, I'm going to try to paint, paint, uh, paint some broad brush strokes about the promised land. This is not kind of where we stop. If you do uh, want to learn more after this morning, I think we can, there's lots that I can point you to and we can direct you to, to engage with this theme more. But just broadly, let's look at how the Bible addresses the promised land and how we can understand it. And then we'll focus in a little bit on this passage that Mel read for us in Numbers. And so uh, I'm going to just uh, walk us through some other scriptures. So if we can bring the first one up there. So the first place I thought we should start is in Psalms. As we think about the promised land, and Psalm 24, 1 to 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So as we're reading through the Old Testament, we have to keep this in mind, that God created the world and ultimately all of it is his. I know that sounds like, okay, yeah, yeah, but let's, let's really think about it. All of this is his, like all of this outside is his, and it's something that he gives. And so from the beginning, God gives humans this earth. Humans are one of the many things that God creates that he says are very good. And we're given this um, relationship with him and this stewardship over it. And we're told that humans really mess it up. And so in the Old Testament, uh, we see this kind of overarching journey of God trying to get this relationship back. He's trying to have this connection with people so that they can be on display for the world, showing what this relationship looks like. And so that starts in a really pivotal way in Genesis 12 with uh, Abram. And so Abram, uh, God calls him. This is the call of Abram. And God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So this is where God kind of really hones in on a specific family that become the Israelites and wants to kind of show the world this relationship with God through this one person, Abraham. Uh, And Abraham does it. He leaves his land. And for us, I think that doesn't seem like a big deal because many of us have left the land where we were born. But in a culture where economically and socially everything was based around family units, not kind of nation states the way we are now, this is a pretty big deal for him to get up and kind of leave all of his security socially and economically and strive out and trust God. And I want us to also just tune in, if you can just go back for a sec, to that end. There's an outward focus here from the beginning God is going to bless him and make his name great so that he can be a blessing for others. And let's keep that in mind. And so the story continues, and these people find themselves, these descendants of Abraham find themselves in slavery um, in a place called Egypt. And they are being held as slaves. um, 
and, and God brings them out of this slavery, and he promises to take them to this land flowing with milk and honey, led by someone named Moses. And they're wandering through the wilderness, and they get to this place in Numbers that we're going to explore, but not yet. So, land is God's, and God establishes this specific people group to be this example, and it's a gift. And it, it's important for us to realize and remember that the Israelites did not do anything to earn this land. It was a gift that they did not get based on their own merit. Um, there's some writings around the time when they're in this wilderness and they're forming their laws and their codes. And there's a few spots that I just want to point us to really quick. So in Deuteronomy 9, uh, there's a longer section that I'm going to read that ends with this, where they're told that you do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. This is not very flattering, a picture of why this people is chosen. We often think of them as the chosen people, but it, they're really chosen as the, the best of a lot of bad options, right? Like I can just picture God up there. He's like, all right, what do we got to work with here? Okay, there's the Amalekites. Oh, nope, nope, they're killing their kids again. Okay, uh, oh, they're not doing any good. Okay, Israelites, you're going to have to make the cut. This is all I have. We're going to have to work with this. They in themselves did not earn this land. This is God bestowing something upon them that they don't really deserve. And this land is a gift. And it's a gift that comes with some um, expectations. It's, it's, got, it's got some kind of promises together with it. Uh, we, we use the language in the Old Testament of the covenant. That God creates a covenant with these people that will allow them to be in this land, and that's kind of the key to them having the land. And the way that we can often think of covenant in today's language is in the form of a marriage, right? People get married, and they make pledges to one another, and if those pledges aren't kept, things will go astray. So God has these lists of kind of, I'm expecting these things of you, and in return, you will get to dwell in this land that is flowing and abundant. And so there is conditions upon this that the people can lose the land. So if we go... To the next one, there's marriage. Um, in Leviticus, uh, one of these other books that is kind of telling the laws of these people, there's kind of an aside where it says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. That same kind of language. You're kind of the, the least bad of all of these options I had. doesn't mean you're great. You're a stubborn people. And so throughout the Old Testament, and this is maybe what I'm hoping you'll take away, is as you're reading it, the, their relationship and their ability to stay on the land kind of becomes this litmus test for how well they're doing with God. So the land is kind of this measuring stick. If they're in the land, it means they're doing well. If they're not in the land or they're losing land and people are coming in, it means they're, they're not doing well. And so this relationship is, is measured in their use of the land. And we can kind of get that too, right? Like in our marriages, if things are not going well, somebody may have to sleep on the couch, for a while. I, uh, I have a personal story about this. Earlier this week, Rachel and I were having a terrible fight, and 
No, I'm just kidding. We, uh, we're in our first year of marriage. We haven't fought yet. It's, we'll be one of those couples that never fights. No, that's not true. She did, she did say to me, she said, so you're preaching. Does that mean I have to be a sermon illustration? And I said, at least one. And she's not here this morning, so I can really just make up <laughs> whatever I want. Um, but there's these terms that the, the people have to agree with, and if they're not agreeing to them, the land will spit them out, and this is kind of their measuring stick. And so a lot of the Old Testament needs to be seen through this lens of these people wrestling with their land. And if a lot of the Old Testament is written during this time of exile, and they're just wrestling with, like, we lost the land, what's going on? A lot of these stories are trying to help the people understand why this land that was so important to them is now gone. And so when they stray from these commitments, uh, when they stop being this shining example of what God is hoping people will see as a good relationship between God and humanity, they will lose the land. Um, I found a, just a really compelling passage in Hosea. Um, the, the prophets were, were pretty good at pointing out where people had gone wrong in a time when they were being besieged and people were getting taken away to other lands and they're having this crisis of what's going on. I thought we were God's chosen people. And uh, Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness, there's no steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So therefore, the land mourns, all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. In this story, we see the land itself actually as a character, that when they are breaking these bonds of covenant faithfulness, the land is being removed from them. And I think this is really pressing for our time. A lot of the resources are going too when there's not faithfulness with God. So God has this gift of the world. It is a gift given to a very stubborn people who don't deserve it but are at least better than the other options, and they can lose it if this relationship is not a healthy one and honoring to both parties. And so it's a key part of this understanding of the Old Testament and this idea of covenant, um, and ultimately this idea of unfaithfulness that we see kind of going through the Bible. And we can see this with Jesus too, right? Like a lot of people are kind of questioning him and saying, okay, if you're the Messiah, is he going to be bringing back our sovereignty? Like are we going to be a people again? And it's this kind of litmus test. He must not be the Messiah if he's not bringing our land back under our control. He, he fails that test based on the expectations that the people had sort of built up about what that was supposed to look like. This relationship that God had hoped would be with Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to others. This relationship on display for all of humanity to see. And the Bible, the Old Testament tells us it did not go well. They go into exile. And we'll be exploring some of that in the coming weeks. And so what do we do with this all? This is very broad brushstrokes. If we want to talk more, we can. And I recognize we're not getting into a lot of specifics about how land functions in the Old Testament story. Um, and so we're Christians 2,000 years later, and um, I must admit that I've had uh, some questions around how we can use this idea of a promised land today. And this has actually been a lot of my struggle with preparing for this sermon this morning and not really sure what to do with it. So on one hand, I want... To us to remember that our faith is this earthy, literal thing that is lived and breathed in our streets and our neighborhoods. But I've also, I think we've seen some ways that this has been used in inappropriate ways or often harmful ways. So I'll give a few examples of maybe ways that we've seen the church work this out. So the first 
uh, is in colonization. Um, the, the promised land story was a big part of coming across a lot of people who look like me <laughs> coming across to North America uh, and saying, this is, we are the new Israel. This is a land that has been given to us. We are to take possession of it because God has blessed us and take this land. Um, there's one scholar named Robert Warrior who's an indigenous theologian who says, and I, I was just convicted by this, he, he says, I can't read these Old Testament stories and not put myself in the shoes of the Canaanite. Like that's, that's the role that he sees for himself, the people whose land is taken away. Uh, and right now, I mean, if, if we look like where we are, this is, this is still earthy and real. Like this is what's known as the Haldeman Tract. I have a mortgage on this piece of land that was promised to other people. And I think we're in the midst right now in Canada of wrestling out um, how we go forward from here. Another example that I, I struggle a lot with is Zionism and just this interaction with Israel and Palestine and especially in the evangelical church, just seeing this new Israel um, as a blanket statement for a lot of things going on in the Middle East. We don't see Egypt as a literal place of slavery anymore, and I struggle with this example as well. I think a really positive example is the work of Martin Luther King Jr. If we go to the next slide, Martin Luther King Jr. used the idea of exodus and exile and promised land during the Civil Rights Movement to work for the freedom of people. In an incredible speech that he gave the night before he died, he says that he's looked over, he wants to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go to the mountain. He's looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there right with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so while on one hand, I want us to remember that our faith is earthy. On the other hand, I think that some of this concept is best used in this example. Conveying a future that we are trying to get to as a collective where we're back in right relationship with God and all the implications of what that looks like if that can become a reality. So with all of this in our minds, let's jump back to Numbers 14. <laughs> we'll finally get to this text at hand. And so there's this moment where they're wondering if they're going to get to the promised land and see the promised land. So before the reading that Mel gave us, um, they send some spies out into the land, and they come back with a report. They come back with a report that there are an incredible amount of resources in this bountiful land they've been given, but there's also a lot of enemies and threats. And this community faces a crisis moment where it wonders where its future will be. Some people are very wary of this place. It feels like certain death. It does not feel like a blessing at all. The language they use evokes these old places that they know really well. If we go to the next scripture, this is just a section from what Mel read us. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So just the phrasing of this really conveys this longing for what they've known. Um, Egypt is this, this place that we know as a place of slavery. I do have some challenges with their use of the word wilderness. Um, although I think to me it gets at some of the perspective here, right? A wilderness is a word that some people use to describe the great outdoors. It's a word, wilderness is a word used by a group of people that I like to affectionately call indoorsy. Uh, so really... It's two perspectives on the same thing, right? We've got the great outdoors, they're camping in the desert, or they're in the wilderness where nothing is living and we're all going to die. But that's what's going on here, right? We've got the outdoorsy and the indoors. No, 
we'll stop that. We've got two perspectives. We've got two perspectives of what is going on. One group says, we've been abandoned. Where is God? The other group says, we're about to experience something great. God is with us. This language of recurring back and back to Egypt is because it's a known place. There's a predictability to Egypt. I'm reminded of the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus has died and he's resurrected and he goes looking for his disciples and they're back in their fishing boats. They know how to fish, so they just go back and start doing that. These people are faced with a crisis moment. Well, at least we know what's back there. Let's go back to Egypt. But whether it's known or not, Egypt is certainly slavery. Even if there's better food on the table at the time. It's a step back from everything God has done from them in the wilderness. It's shackles again. I imagine for each of us in this room, we don't have to think very hard uh, to know where we want to run back to when we get anxious or scared or feel alone. There are certainly shackles that you could run back to. But it would certainly be slavery. I think these people have some very fair questions when they're confronted with this uncertainty. Is God leading us somewhere, good or dark? What will happen to our children? Why did he bring us here? And we see God giving up hope on them too. He's ready to turn their lack of faithfulness and turn back and start over again with just Moses. He's had enough of their unfaithfulness. He's been trying for so long. This story doesn't conclude on this note. It ends with our reading uh, with Moses convincing God to change his mind. Just change your mind, and, and God does. And as a result, these people are allowed to come back to the land, but they have to wander for 40 years. It's a time that the writer of Hebrews and other New Testament writers will look back on as a great rebellion and a great time of disobedience, a time of losing out. They have to learn to rely on God's provision. Manna and water, not the best, but they're there, and they're from unlikely places. These things will help people know that their God is truly good. And it will lead them to a place far better than Egypt from where they came and where they know. They would not see the promised land, but their kids would. Those who would learn to trust God in the wilderness or the great outdoors. To learn faithfulness rather than run back to slavery. They, they have to spend this time in the wilderness learning to heed these instructions of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Do not forget whose promised land it is. It's God's to give or take away. For those of us this morning that are trying to take this commitment of discipling after Jesus seriously, I think we have to remember that we're called to be faithful in uncertainty, lest we certainly find slavery. This story is not over. As I believe, and many of you believe, that through the messy incarnation and death of Christ, God shows all of humanity this new way forward to be on display and living in right relationship with God, our land, and one another for the world to taste and see that God is good. And it's not in a specific place, but in all the places that we find ourselves today. My prayer is that we can see that and strive to get as close as we can without turning away for something more familiar. Martin Luther King's words are incredible. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but we're going. My prayer is that we can too can taste and see of this promised land, this place where God is leading us and that we, that we do not lose heart in the wilderness. Remember that God has active interest in declaring this land good 
that all the narratives we read in the Old Testament as well as the poetry and laws are given in these physical places. Let us think about that this week and how we can dwell in the land the Lord has given us. Whether that's 22 Willow, your street, Waterloo, Kitchener, Elmira, New Hamburg, the Great Lakes region that we all inhabit. Let us steward this gift of the land we've been given well and be a faithful bride and trust that God is here with us as well. I'd like to pray for us. God, thank you for the gifts you give us. Help us to heed them well, to be rooted in this place, and to be on the lookout for your promised land and how we can get there. God, I pray that this week we would be mindful of where you are in our physical spaces and where you're asking us to be on display for the world as your light, showing right relationship with you to those around us who do not know you yet. I pray that you'll be with us as we discuss together and as we go from this place. Amen. So we are going to head to discussion groups. They're through this door, just into the gym. A reminder that we have prayer today. If you'd like to head down the hall, we have prayer in the study. And we'll be back next week looking at our next uh, installment in our place series.